I see the same absurdism in the way that these actresses are treated because you know people are watching them behind closed doors and getting off on it. But out in the real world, quote unquote, it's okay to call her a whore, it's okay to demonize her, to stalk her, to harass her. You know, it's just, it's really sad. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I'm pleased to welcome Natalia Antonova to talk about sexual practice, relationships, and pornography in Russia. So in this podcast, we talk about sex and porn, but nothing too graphic. Nevertheless, here's a warning for the more prudish. Natalia Antonova is a pundit, playwright, and sometimes journalist living in Russia. You can read her blog where she comments on a wide variety of topics, including sex, at nataliaantonova.com. Her most recent article is, Russia's porn stars aren't just hot, they're also ostracized and exploited on open democracy. Here's Natalia Antonova. Well, let's start by having you answer a big question to paint a general picture of sexual relationships in Russia. What does sexual practice, sexual relations, and the consumption of sex, and and here I mean not just pornography, but the consumption of sexuality in media more generally, what does all of this say about Russia? I think it says that Russia is kind of at a crossroads with regard to how people relate to human sexuality here. Because there is a lot of outward conservatism, and it has gotten way more pervasive and way more reactionary in Putin's third term. But at the same time, I feel like people in, in like in their private lives, they are much more liberal than you know. For for example, than Americans are, you know, because I grew. I mean, I grew up in uh, in the states mostly, and then when I came to Moscow, I was pretty shocked at how liberal people are behind closed doors. Let's say that. And I also noticed that just there's a, you know, like there's, there's Pornhub, which is the biggest pornography site on the internet right now. And they do very helpful statistics on, you know, who searches for what by country, by state and so on. And their statistics about Russia are fascinating. I mean, like 2014, like Russia, Russians were searching for anal more than any other country in the world, according to Pornhub, which I thought was interesting. And in 2015, the biggest, the most gaining search term for Russian Pornhub users was My Little Pony, which, as you know, it's a it's a children's show, but it has attracted this big adult following. And as a result of having an adult following, there's this subset of it called cloppers. And cloppers are basically into My Little Pony porn. And it turns out that this... This trend apparently is just exploding in Russia and you're thinking, okay, so you have all this conservatives on, on TV and in schools and everywhere else, but people seem to be kind of reacting against that, but in a very indirect way, you know, like they don't want to, they're not going to take to the streets with this with signs, but what they are going to do is just kind of react to it privately, I guess. So that's, that's like a polite way of putting it. Yeah, and I want to I want to talk more about that in, in in later in the interview about this strange dichotomy between a growing conservatism and maybe a increase possible increase in, in sexual fetishism to kind of put it more generally. Okay, so Russians are engaging uh, or searching for you know certain things and various porn sites. You get this very strange phenomenon of My Little Pony, which from what you're telling what you just said, it seems like well Russia's sexual practices are actually more aligning. In, with kind of a global Western 
trends, in particularly with the relationship to sex on the internet. Or Japanese, you know. I feel, yeah. Yeah, it's, I feel like they kind of borrow from all kinds. I mean, not borrow, but just, it's just kind of the way the way Russia is. It's always stuck between East and West, and I think it borrows from both, and it's its own thing. Most of these popular notions of sexual desire, and you, you see this most prominent, I think the most extreme cases is in pornography, but also in general, like the general portrayal of sexuality in media and society tends to be quite male-centered, like male desire focused on male desire. What about the sexual desire and practices of Russian women? Is there something, say, I mean, it's a difficult question, but is there something distinct about Russian women's sexual desire that you can pinpoint? Well, I think that, uh, first of all, once again, you have a dichotomy because things are one way on the surface and then they're they're very different behind closed doors. There is a very popular saying in Russia, it's existed forever, it says that, you know, men love with their eyes, they're visual, and women love with their ears, they want to hear compliments and so on. And that's the, you know, that is, that's the traditional, that's what's on the surface, that's tradition. And it's also tradition to say that Women don't need many sexual partners. What they really want is a man who will provide stability, like financial stability for them. And they will in turn kind of turn a blind eye to his philandering. You know, men are expected to cheat in Russian culture. Uh, women, once again, traditionally speaking, are not expected to cheat. But that is the, you know, that is kind of the mainstream discourse that is happening out in the open. And then when I really, I mean, when I think about the majority of my Russian friends who happen to be women, especially young women, they view cheating just, they're very blasé about it, just as men are. For them, it's like, you know, I love him, I'm faithful to him, but, you know, maybe he doesn't satisfy me in some way and I'm going to go seek that somewhere else. This is very common, I find. And I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm friends with a very specific subset of people. I don't know. But based on like my mother's friends, you know, my mom's Russian and her friends are way more conservative. But some of the stories I hear about them, including women who are older, they're the kind of stories that you wouldn't expect to hear about American women. They're much more liberal. Once again, in private, they'll admit to each other, for example, that, oh, I'm bored. We've been married for 20 years and a younger man hit on me at a party. You know, and it's just, it's more acceptable within your circle of friends to actually share those stories. Friends are not supposed to judge each other. You're supposed to have your back. So if people do talk about it, I think that Russian women are much more into, I don't want to, I hesitate to call it traditional masculinity because it's something else. It's, it's not just traditional masculinity. It's traditional masculinity as a response, as a reaction to what they see as the diminishing of masculinity in the West. So they kind of want a man to, as they put it, act like a man, maybe be more more dominant and aggressive, but also kind of, you know, play games with them. Like a Russian woman isn't going to like it if a man is always asking her, is this okay? Do you want to do this? Like, maybe it's it's fine to ask at first, but if you ask her like 10 times, and again, I think all women <laughs> get annoyed by that. But we live in this culture, of course, of these extremes nowadays, you know, these dichotomies, they do exist in Russian culture as well where the place of consent in sexual discourse and in and, and, and private discourse, like it has shifted quite a bit. You know, because before, basically, uh, even 10 years ago, talking to Russian men, they say, oh, well, a woman is saying no, it means that she's just, she just doesn't want you to think she's a slut. That is, I think, changing in urban centers, because most people in urban centers are, they're very, most, the average Russian is quite educated, actually, and they do get exposed to a variety of ideas. And I think that's slowly beginning to shift. I think there's less of a reaction against feminism in urban centers in Russia than it was there, than there was before. 
you know, feminism is beginning to gain a foothold as something that you may not necessarily participate in, but it's kind of this thing that exists in your field of vision and people aren't as weirded out by it anymore. And you have prominent feminists who, you know, also happen to be, but at least by my standards, quite glamorous women. And of course, everybody's into glamour here and into, you know, keeping up appearances and looking very good. So being like, it's no longer this alien thing. I mean, I think in the in, in, in more provincial Russia, there the rules are slightly different, definitely. In provincial Russia, you don't want to be known as a woman who, to put it crudely, puts out. Because whenever your neighbors get drunk, they're going to be knocking on your door at night, you know, stuff like that. Those rules still exist. It's why a lot of women have boyfriends and husbands they're not satisfied with, but they want to have a man there because then they're like, they're someone else's property, basically, and other men will think twice about trying to own them. It's also kind of changing and shifting. It's not, I don't think it's nearly as horrific as it was 10, 15 years ago, but it's still there, that culture. So you have this, you have these dichotomies of the private and the public, and you also have these dichotomies of the more provincial areas versus the more urban areas. And it's really interesting that they're all very different. It's, it's actually really interesting that there's these various dichotomies between urban and, and rural, which, I mean, in a way, it's, it's not all that surprising that in, in urban settings, there's, it's a bit more progressive than, say, in rural settings. You'll, you'll get this, I think, in probably all places around the world, right? But the question then is, is that about where do Russians get their sexual advice? Where do they learn about sex? And now sexual advice columns, for example, have a long history in Russia. There have been a couple of books written on the history of this really from the 19th century, particularly after 1905 revolution and into the early Soviet period. But what's interesting about the genre of sex advice columns and, and media in Russia that I noticed is that it's, it's highly medicalized. So what about sexual advice in Russia today? And what's what role do doctors play? Well, I think that sex advice is actually it's very, it's very diverse. You have women's magazines, obviously, with their own kind of agenda, you have men's magazines as well. And they're, they're pretty popular. I mean, the market, the market is there for them. People do consume the stuff quite a bit, once again, especially in urban centers. So you have that you also have like the religious tradition that has been revived since the fall of the Soviet Union. So you get your like orthodox sex advice. There are orthodox therapists, for example, that offer counseling for couples and like sex advice is part of that you know for example like the church actually says that if you're very religious but your spouse is not and they want to have sex during lent then you should have sex with your spouse during lent because your marriage is more important than lenting and then maybe eventually your spouse will come to jesus through after seeing your wonderful example i mean it's a little bit i don't know like that that's the kind of stuff they they do talk about nowadays so it's it's a little bit more open i think that it was before i think that the medical stuff russian doctors are very grim people uh, so their their view of sex is also extremely grim. So for example, if you have, when it comes to maybe not women's magazines or men's magazines, but more the general publications that want to comment on the sexual trends of the day, they'll invite a doctor and the doctor will be like, well, you know, men today, they watch too much anal and then they try it with their wives and it's bad for the wives and it's right. terrible. So you have that. And it's also, they're all, they're always in the context. It's not, they don't really talk about pleasure as much as they talk about like protecting yourself. At the same time, you know, you, you have to understand like there is the, an HIV epidemic in Russia. And it's, it's, you know, it, part of the reason why it's really growing out of all proportion is because people just, they're not, they, they don't realize the, the, the threat because the medical community has been really silent about it. There's so much shame attached to HIV that people who have it don't come out and say that they have it. Now that it's been revealed to be this big epidemic, you have had some prominent people kind of step into the limelight and say, actually, by the way, I'm HIV positive. Hello. 
There's a Dosh guy on a, in Russia's only independent news channel who came out and did that. And I mean, he was flooded with letters of support because it's a, it's a problem. It's a growing problem. They're going to have to find a way to deal with it. Is there a discourse of safe sex? Well, I think that it's sort of, there, there is, but it's not, it's not, it hasn't been, you know, like the major actor in Russians' lives is always the government and the government is to, like, it can't please everyone if it starts talking about safe sex because then the church will step in and say, what are you doing? You know, so it's, it's very, so the government is basically sitting on its hands doing nothing. There's lots of ignorance and there's lots of, you know, I mean, you have to understand Russia also doesn't have a safety culture at all. You know, you see, you see that in all aspects of life. Safety culture is something that is very slowly starting to grow in Russia. So the safety culture that's absent, say, in, in, in the airplane industry, it's the same as, as it is in sex. You know, people just don't consider, you know, people take a lot of risks. They're impulsive. I would say Russians, Russians overall, I think, are some of the most impulsive people in private that I have ever met. So it's, it's not just an issue of ignorance as much as it is an issue of a specific kind of culture that has, that places desire in this interesting contest. I mean, I think that, I don't know, I forget the author of this article. There's a great article. You should definitely look it up. It talks about how Russians love differently than Westerners do. And loving as a Westerner is basically, you have to keep asking yourself, is this person good for me? Are they holding me back? Is this practical? Is this like, it's almost like, is yeah, is my, is my relationship a good investment for me? Russians take this completely opposite view. And they're like, I love her or I love him. I don't care. It's very common, for example, for for Russian marriages to break up because a woman has a husband and two kids and all of a sudden a lover appears in the horizon and he's basically like, okay, you're coming with me, that's it. it there, that, there is that, they don't try to, they, they see love as illogical, they see desire as illogical, they see it as something that is, belongs to the irrational side of our nature. And they act accordingly. And it's a lot of fun. I think that's that's one of the things that makes living in Russia really fun. But it does result in quite a lot of broken homes and screwed up relationships and bitter, angry people. So I think the article, uh, and basically the article concludes and says, look, maybe it's a good idea to take some from the West, but also take some from, from Russia and find the middle ground, find a balance there. Do you think this concept of love, because I, I actually find this really interesting, do you think there is a connection between that and also the hyper-feminizing and hyper-masculinity that's practiced, where it, it's, you know, like you said earlier, women like these men who are just, you know, these kind of traditional masculine figures, and I would assume that Russian men, for the most part, also like traditional feminine figures, it, it does do you see a relationship between those gender relations and the type of concept of love? I do. I mean, I think it, I think the concept of love itself is a symptom of a greater issue, and that is the fact that Russians must always live as if there's no tomorrow. Because t tomorrow, really, if you're if you're in Russia, you know that tomorrow might not come, or tomorrow will be completely different from yesterday. There's life is very unpredictable. It's in, it's unpredictable for everyone, for for political figures, for businessmen, for for criminals, for for anyone. And and so as a result of that, you just you know you live in the moment, and therefore you you do what you need to do basically. And it's it's very true. I mean, if you talk to like Russian men, for example, they never. They never try to explain to themselves or to you or to anyone else, why are you with that particular woman? They're like, I don't know. I just, I want to be with her. You know, like it's very, for them, it's very basic. And also there's this fact that in Russia, there is not a whole lot of, 
you don't have intermediaries, you don't have social institutions between the individual and the state. You know, it's always you versus the state. And it's a, it's a huge power imbalance. And I think maybe that does contribute to hyper masculinity and hyper femininity in some way, because masculinity and femininity are there's lots of aspects to that. But there it, it is kind of a weapon in many ways for a man to be super manly or for a woman to be extremely womanly and have charms and kind of she a woman is is it, it, Russians believe that a, a woman who is very womanly she disarms her opponents by being who she is by being desirable by being feminine by being kind of flexible and so on and so therefore maybe if you if you if you're always living in a system of constant pressure you know the concept the, the, the real western concept of makeup is war paint that there is a side of you that you kind of you conceal your true face by putting on makeup every day, not because you hate yourself necessarily, but because you just, you know, you want to keep something of yourself to yourself. You don't let people see the real you. And it, it's a self-defense tactic. And I think in Russia, it's really kind of an exaggerated self-defense tactic where you're, you're playing a role out in public because it's a way to to keep your your your, your true self hidden, basically. So I think that's why it's so popular. Yeah, that would go go along with what you were saying about this stark divide between the public and the private, where the public is far more performative than, say, one's behavior in the private. But you you put this kind of, this dichotomy between, which is a very standard one between, say, the the individual of Russia and the state, and there's very few mediating institutions. But there is family, and there are friends. And I, I do know that there is no state-directed, as far as I know, no state-directed kind of sexual education in schools. So... Where do young people and adults go for sexual education? Is it online, a combination of online magazines, advice columns, friends, family? It's it, yeah, it's magazines, advice columns, it's friends, it's family, it's porn, obviously for both for both men and women. To be honest, I mean, I, women here they will, they will never admit it to you if they don't know you very well, but they do watch sure. quite a bit of porn, and also to understand, you know, like what what are people into these days? Especially if you're like getting back onto the dating scene after getting divorced or something. Porn is the, is the go to for I think for a lot of people, which is good and bad sometimes. But yeah, it's uh, I think there's just it's so it's so informal the sexual education, which is why there's so so many misconceptions. There's lots of anti-scientific ideas floating around out there. For example, I was at a I was at a seminar once that completely had nothing to do with sex. It was all about how to better organize your life and how to do this. And the guy's quite famous for for being good at it. But in the middle of the seminar, he's just he starts talking about how you know women shouldn't have sex with too many people because even if like, if she ends up having a baby with somebody else, the baby will look like her first sexual partner because the female body just absorbs that sperm and then it changes imprinting yeah imprint they actually have and people are sitting there dutifully nodding just taking down notes and i was the only one going talking about like i was i just stopped there i sat and i was like and this isn't somebody who's stupid this isn't somebody who came in off the street this is a guy who has you know not 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 quite a phd but he's got a master's in like management you know he's not from some backwoods area he didn't come from a from a village on a donkey cart but at the same time he's saying these things because once again there is no formalized approach to sexual education and when you don't have that approach rumors are created and weird theories and the the facts are very hard to parse out from this this overall colorful chaos let's talk some uh, more about pornography now now pornography has a it seems to have an ambiguous place in russia there's a high consumption of it but in terms of legality it's quite murky what is the the legal status of pornography in terms of its production but also its dissemination well technically this is what the problem is the problem is is that there is this very vague law about 
illegal production of porn and a dissemination of porn, like illegal production. But nobody has defined what is legal porn. You know, there is no definition. So anybody who does it here or produces here is absolutely vulnerable. And by vulnerable, I mean just vulnerable to law enforcement who want to make a buck off of you. Um, you right. know, to put it to put it bluntly. So it, porn doesn't have legal status. It's in that gray area, and nobody really wants to deal with it because they're they're busy reimagining the empire, or they're busy having conservative revival, or what. And of course, they can't talk about it on TV. They can't say that. Look, guys, there's this problem with this law. It 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 doesn't make any sense. And but 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 it's true that you know Russia is still a pretty young country. So of course, a lot of its legislation it's built upon earlier legislation. And there's always there, there's lots of blanks basically that are there to be filled. And porn is in one. Porn re- represents this big legal blank right now. And it's very it's very bad for performance. That's why that's why they go abroad. Most of them they know that if they want to make any money, they have to go abroad. They go to Budapest. They go to places like that to you know to support themselves basically. Now, in in the United States, uh, I'm sure you're well aware, there's a growing concern about the influence of pornography, particularly on on boys and and young men, uh, in shaping their ideas about their desire, ideas about sexual practice, and and also sexual relations. And and you mentioned earlier that, you know, pornography does play this role of both educative and educative role, but this could be also good and bad. Does porn play a similar role in Russia? Is there a, with the increasing consumption of pornography... Is it shaping people's sexual practice? I would say to some degree, yes. But I mean, this is always what happens when you have an unrealistic approach to sex in your culture. I mean, I feel like in the States, for example, you know, I went to school in North Carolina and I went to private school. So we didn't have this whole notion. We weren't taught abstinence only. But for for a lot of other people, it's like abstinence is the way and, you know, don't sin my child. That's so unrealistic to expect of both boys and girls. So, of course, like you have this and then you have this this porn culture that kind of go come, is, is there to fill in the blanks for you. But it because porn, I mean, porn is very diverse. Lots of people make it. Lots of people are in it. They all have different ideas about what is beautiful, what is cool, what is sexy. But it's still very much like it's all it's about it's a performance. It's not real. These people, for the most part are acting and they're acting out a certain story and they're acting because because there's they they know that their particular viewer has certain expectations and when you're like 15 years old and nobody's talking to you about sex except to say that it's really dirty and shameful then of course like you're gonna watch this porn and a lot of the mainstream porn is it isn't a lot i mean mainstream porn for the most part i wouldn't say it's like starkly misogynist like some of the march like there's there's there are extreme varieties of porn out there that are extremely misogynist but like the really mainstream sort of quote-unquote vanilla stuff it's kind of like eh, it's half and half you know it's not feminist you're not gonna gonna call it feminist but it's sort of like oh you know it's you know it's 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 a lady having sex well you do it's it, it very much teaches both men and women that you have to perform in bed and it's it's a performance and it's you're not there to enjoy it but you're there to perform it so that's a little bit weird it's true in russia to a degree as well because porn is once again it's something that is very much in the private sphere and not on the public sphere I think, like, if a guy is going on a date with a girl for the first time, he's not going to tell her, you know, no, I watch this porn movie and this is what we should do. <laughs> like, you know, it's right. gonna, it's not going to be like that. But I'm not one of those people who thinks that porn should be banned. I think it should be studied and criticized or whatever, you know. But I don't think it should be banned. I think it's always going to be around. I do think that there is, there is this, there is a very specific difference between men. There are some men, you, you know, like they watch porn, like you know, men do, but they also have relationships and they have friends and they have a life outside that and. They don't have these wild expectations. But for men, for example, who as boys perhaps didn't have as big of a social life, weren't as outgoing, they kind of retreat into this fantasy world of porn. And then you really do notice a difference when they're like more in their 20s and they're starting to date and you're hanging out with them and you're like, 
okay, well, this guy clearly has watched a little bit too much. One of the things you wrote in going to this idea of, of pornography and this interesting explosion of interest in anal sex based on the uh, the, the Pornhub survey, uh, and one of your blog posts talking about the, the Pornhub survey, you mentioned the fact that you referenced the legacy of gulag culture on relations of sex and power and domination in, in Russia. Talk a bit about this. It's interesting because my old boss, very good Russian journalist, extremely smart, Nabi Abdullayev, he's originally from Dagestan. He recently had this awesome Facebook post about, you know, something, something very, very much related to this. He was talking about how there's no, there's no real discussion of Russian masculinity, like modern Russian masculinity and what it all means. Because women's magazines, for example, and, and women, the culture that is targeted towards women, it is kind of more open, basically, and women are encouraged to open up, even Russian women. There's a big discussion on femininity, and it's sort of taken center stage in Russia. But masculinity, nobody's even nobody's even defining what, what, what it means to be like a young man or, or, or older man in, in Russia today. And he said that one of the few cultures where this is discussed, it's, it's prison culture. And this is where this, this is the culture that does exert its, its influence and kind of teaches boys how to be men. And of course, prison culture is extremely messed up. It's extremely messed up. And one of the reasons why prison culture has found its way into the lives of regular people, richer people, middle class people, city people, however you want to call them, it's because of the legacy of the gulag. Because you had these mass imprisonments. Everybody was going, so you were imprisoning rapists and thieves, sure, but you were also imprisoning teachers and you were imprisoning artists. And basically this huge shift took place behind the walls of these prison camps where this gulag culture was born. It, it was able to become mainstream because the people who were setting the agenda later on themselves had some kind of relationship to repressions in the gulag. So in that culture, in the gulag culture, the worst thing you can be is a guy who's engaging in anal sex, but, you know, he's not like the, the dominant party, he's a submissive. So it's the worst thing you could be it, to be a submissive. And it had nothing to do with homosexuality, really. It had everything to do with power and humiliation and hierarchies. Every little prison had to have its own hierarchy. And if you're on top, then you're, then you're dominant. And if you're, in, if, if you're bottom, basically, well, you know, you're, you're lower than scum. Because of that, anal sex is taboo. But also, they're all, of course, they're fascinated by it. You know, they're fascinated by it. And they were also, I mean, I think that once the kind of the, all the, these walls came down and post-Soviet culture began to integrate in all these different ways into kind of more mainstream culture, people saw a very different notion of anal sex. You know, they were like, they were thinking, oh, but it's not considered shame. I mean, this, maybe it's a kind of, it's kind of, it's a kind of, it still, was, was still a taboo back in the West as well, but it was kind of, it, it had nothing to do with like prison culture per se, or not nearly as much as, uh, as, as yeah, Russia. Yeah. So it's, um, I, this is one of the reasons why it's so popular, why it, why it was this big popular search term. Uh, out of the three categories that people log on to Pornhub, and it's still the number one category for Russians in 2015, it's anal. They just click on it and go and look, look at all the, look at all the videos. And this is how I think it's normal, you know, and I don't think it's necessarily going to cure this legacy of the gulag within this society. The society needs to do a lot of soul searching before that ever could happen. But it's one way that people are kind of exploring it nowadays, I think. This, this issue that was so humiliating, so horrifying, 
Yet at the same time, people want to try it and they want to do it. And, you know, porn just provides them with a, a playground just to see how, how it's done. Now, you also recently wrote about the, the production of porn itself and particularly the conditions in which it, its actresses work in, but not only its actresses. Talk about the, the porn industry in Russia and the conditions in which these people labor. Once again, most of them just go abroad because they're smart and they know that they can't, you know, they're ne never going to make the kind of money that they could if they're, if they're in Russia. But some of them stay, I mean, some of them, there's, there's a big swinger scene in Russia, of course. Once again, behind closed doors, it's a big, it's a big deal. And so some porn actors come from that scene. They realize, oh, I'm really good at this stuff. Like, I'm great at orgies, you know. Why don't I try my, myself in this? So yeah, so they, so they come from that, a lot of them. I was reading about this in Afisha, actually. This actor was talking to an Afisha journalist about the kind of movies they make. It's all very, if you do decide to make porn in Russia, what, it's all very kind of, it's like, it's like a, it's the porn that's the version of the, the garage band. You know what I mean? It's, it, it's amateurish. And it's shot in a certain way because there is a market for it, but it's, it's the Western companies that pay for this, of course, because Russian companies, you know, their legal status is so undefined that, you know, where do you get the money from? It, for example, he was talking about this actor in, being interviewed by Afisha was talking about how he and his wife both engage in it. It's a side job for them. They just do it for fun. And they have somebody like they have sex on the beach and then they have a guy like, sitting in the bushes and filming them as if he's, you know, a voyeur and he just like came up. Yeah, he came upon this couple having sex on the beach. So it's so it's that that kind of stuff is really popular. Also, I mean, and I'm really sorry to say this, but he, he got to talk about it. Fake rape videos. Hugely popular. Once again, they're being imported from Russia to by, by Western companies. So in the beginning, it'll, it says you, everybody in this is over 18. They're acting. They're acting. These are actors. No crime was committed, blah, blah. But then it's just these women, for example, who have an electrician visit them in their house because a light switch is broken and the guy ends up, quote unquote, raping her. So that's a big one. Overall, it's just, it's really amateurish. Soldier videos as well. Yes, of course, because like the sex-starved, conscripted Russian soldier finds a naked lady in the bathroom right. and he and his friends join in or something. You know, it's, it's stuff like that. It's, I mean, I'm not going to say that all of it is particularly healthy. And well, no, it's not, it's not really to, it's not really the, 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 you know, pass kind of, my intent is not to pass any moral judgment on it, but to just understand it. And, and, but one of the things you talk about in the article is the dichotomy in the sense that there is this consumption of pornography on the one hand, but the, the actress is seen as a whore or is marginalized or ostracized in society. Oh yeah. That, that's, that's, the thing that's why there's no these women don't even have a community that they can be part of like people can in california for example when you have a large porn community that kind of looks out for, for people there look out for each other they don't have that in russia communities in general are very scarce in russia but like especially if you're a porn actress so a lot of these women have, are being harassed online you know their their parents are being contacted about their work their friends and it's seen as okay because you know well she signed up for it so there is that publicly once again everybody's watching porn everybody's watching porn well, not everybody, but like most everybody. So it's okay to watch, but it's not okay for these women to take part in it. You know, it's it's a complete, it, it's so absurd, but it, it is what it is. And it's so Soviet in a sense, because it, I hate to bring up Peter Pomerantsev here. He's not going to appreciate me bringing him up in the context of this discussion. But he did write very well about how, you know, in the Soviet Union, you didn't believe anything that you were kind of doing outside your apartment. And then you, you sat around in your kitchen and talked about how you really felt. I see the same absurdism in the way that these actresses are treated because you know people are watching them behind closed doors and getting off on it 
But out in the real world, quote unquote, it's okay to call her a whore, it's okay to demonize her, to stalk her, to harass her. You know, it's just, it's really sad. Let's talk a bit about homosexuality because it, it seems homosexuality also has this ambiguous place in Russian society. I mean, it's an object of political and social scorn, even violence, as a recent uh, article in Medusa put forward quite clearly. But it, it's also a site of political contestation where you have a growing LGBT movement and people trying to speak out and fight for gay rights. But then you you have, on the other hand, you have kind of state-sanctioned homosexuality in a way, as represented in pop stars like Philippa Kikorov. Is homosexuality in Russia more complex than it's often portrayed in Western media? Well, I have to say that Philippe, for example, he's not out, so right. I, I don't know what his story but, is. But, he, uh, but it's certainly I, a gay aesthetic. He he does have a gay aesthetic, but he a lot of people adopt that, you know, and and they do adopt that. I mean, I think some of them, some of the Russian pop stars, male pop stars, do adopt that because they realize that this appeals to the babushkas in the older generation who have their own ideas about what it means to be a beautiful man. And they don't realize these, you know, these women who are consuming these videos, they don't, they don't see it as gay. They see it as wonderful and beautiful. And look at, look at all the feathers these guys are wearing. Isn't this great? You know, so it's very much maybe kind of like how people regarded Liberace. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, but, but, but the thing is, is that it's basically there is this sub, very big subset of Russian culture and it's, it's, it's on state TV. It's huge. It's popular. Basically, you can act as gay as you want on state TV. Just don't come out and say you're gay. That's what it. That's what it is. You can't. So you can perform the aesthetic, but you can't live the life. Well, you live. Hey, live the life if you want. Just do it behind closed doors where we can't see you. Don't talk about it. Don't drag your boyfriend out in public. And it's a problem for a lot of these performers because, of course, for for the ones who are genuinely gay and who live that lifestyle then they're vulnerable to blackmail and they're vulnerable to their enemies. You know, like you say you have a fight with your producer and your producer goes and tells a tabloid journalist that, hey, you know, this guy's gay and, you know, I've got proof. So it's really, it's one of these things where the fact that, it, it once again, it can be practiced in the open, it just encourages abuse and it encourages harassment, once again, as it's very similar to what uh, female porn actresses go through. But divorce from that, once again, Russians live rich and colorful private lives. And in gay clubs are remain very popular in urban russia and drag shows as well yeah this is what I, I was kind of getting at i assume it's far more complex because you do have this in entertainment the deployment and consumption of a gay aesthetic for lack of a better term but you seem to have this this general don't ask don't tell policy the concern about homosexuality at least in the political realm in russia seems to be more about its public display rather than its private life yeah, it's uh, it's very much targeted towards public displays because you know uh, if you have an authoritarian or semi-authoritarian system, then you you want people to be loyal to that system. And if you're gay, then you're loyal to your like gay little gay community, and that's not cool. And this is why authoritarian regimes always try to regulate people's personal lives because you can't love your spouse or you can't love your boyfriend. You got to love your leader. That's what it's about. And Russia, of course, doesn't doesn't have an actual dear leader mentality. Once again, it has a performative dear leader mentality, which I find fascinating. Yeah. It's very much a hybrid regime, so it's got different elements. But I would also like to say, it's, it, Russians, like especially older Russians, Russians, they love sparkle. They love everything that sparkles because they were denied it for so long. If you were a woman who's now like, you know, women in their 60s and 70s, back when they were young, did they have, could they go to the store and have like a 100 varieties of lipsticks? No. So now they turn on their TV and there's a man who's got a 100 variety of lipsticks and they're like, awesome, great. I love this. 
you know, it's, I was having a conversation about this with some women and like secret, super cool fashion group I'm somehow wound up as part of, mostly because my friends created it, friends who quit the Russian media and saw, they saw the looming iceberg and went and created this fashion consultancy. And they have this big group now that discusses fashion all the time. And it's got a lot of people from the provinces, but also a lot of people who are kind of like high up in the food chain, like business women and even, even some, even some political figures are involved in it. And, we just discussed this love that the average w woman in Russia, especially if she's older, has for everything that glitters. And people are always talking about how it's because they were just, they, they just didn't have this growing up. And now they're overcompensating for it. And it, these pop stars are a big part of that. It's all overcompensation from years and years of just no sparkle, no fun shoes, no real fashion. It's uh, this is what happens when people can't they couldn't express themselves in your youth. So now you have ostentatiousness as a predominant aesthetic. And of course, they don't realize it. But, you know, in our minds, this ostentatiousness is very much tied to the gay lifestyle. So it's just it's one of these things that they just they just see it differently. Like my grandma, I could never tell I could never tell my grandma that her favorite male pop stars are either probably gay or they just act gay i couldn't tell, i couldn't utter that word to her because she doesn't see it that way she her her concept of it is so different and, and finally and and this kind of this goes to leads to my last question over the last few years there has been an effort to reassert traditional russian values whatever that means however in this effort there's also been an explosion of discourse of sex right you know you probably have more discussion in media about homosexuality in the last four or five years than you did really before since the, the attempts to kind of control homosexuality for example in what ways has this push for traditional values resulted in in its opposite well you first have to go back to the reason why traditional values are being reasserted it's demographics they want people to have more babies they want people to have more babies because the population is shrinking and how do you get them to do that well you tell them that it's great to be in a conservative relationship to have one partner and to have like five kids with, with him you know and or with her you know it's uh so this is why it's happening but it does it is true that in this age it's just russia's not north korea thank god knock on wood uh, and it's just it's too it's too big to be north korea it's just a huge country how do you how do you do that in, in in the 21st century let's hope we never find out first of all second of all it is true that when you try to get all traditional you sort of kind of you start dredging up these different associations because for example there's a type of milk that, you know, you can, they, they sell it virtually at any local grocery. And there's like a happy cow frolicking on the carton. And there's like a rainbow. And nobody thinks anything of it. They're buying the milk. The milk is fine. And then some completely obsessed new wave reactionary conservative religious nut comes along. And he's, I, I think it was, uh, it was either a businessman or a lawmaker. I forget who, but it was some, some big time religious nut. And he's like, oh my God. We have to investigate this. The cow is frolicking next to a rainbow. It's, a, it's the gay agenda. And so all these people who never even considered, you know, they, they were not thinking about gays when they were buying this milk. They were just buying their milk. Now they're associating it with the gay agenda. So you, you're creating these bridges in people's consciousness. And sometimes it does have the opposite effect. I mean, just the fact that now everybody's talking about gays and gay ropa. This is what they call Europe, gay ropa. And it's like, okay, so calling it gay ropa. So now every time you take a business trip over there, are you like, does it turn you gay? You know what I mean? So it's just, this is what happens when people try to sweep something under the carpet it or, or kind of remove it from all public life and all public conversation. 
it can kind of start creeping back in in these weird ways where you have babushkas sitting on a bench discussing gay dudes, whereas before they would be discussing their borscht recipes. And of course, as Russia becomes more plugged in, like right now, Russia already has the biggest in, in population of internet users in Europe. It passed Germany some years ago, and it's, it's only going to keep growing. And, I mean, and most people, once again... They don't, they, in Russia, they don't get really news from the internet as much, but they do hang out with their friends and they see, they use social networks and, you know, check popular sites. This whole discourse, it, it is really shifting and it's much harder in this discourse when the, when, for example, traditional values versus non-traditional values are constantly being discussed in all aspects of the media. When you have conservative journals, you know, they're always railing about gay sex, gay this, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay, great. They're railing about it. But as, as you were saying, they're also, they keep mentioning it so much. It, even for people who are not political, it kind of becomes part of their daily landscape. So I don't know what the effects of that will be. But I do think that if you take this, the whole of the new Russian conservative, it's a lot of it is like the lady doth protest too much. You know what I mean? At this point, really. I mean, a, a lot of people who drive it seem so obsessed with it that you kind of have to wonder about what, what is really going on in their minds. That was Natalia Antonova, pundit, playwright, and sometime journalist living in Russia. Her most recent article is Russia's porn stars aren't just hot. They're also ostracized and exploited on open democracy. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. You can find past shows on iTunes, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. I've also started a weekly email newsletter, the SRB Weekly Dispatch, which rewinds the Newsweek in Russia. You can subscribe to it at seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. sex fiend I met her in a hotel lobby masturbating with a magazine she said how'd you like to waste some time and I could not resist when I saw little Nikki grind Can't tell you what you did to me